Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with four-time World Series winner Tino Martinez. One on, two out. Martinez hits one to deep right center field. Now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Joining us today is a four-time World Series champ, is a member of the New York Yankees, drove in 100 runs six times, and he's a former, we were former teammates. Ladies and gentlemen, Tino Martinez. Tino, it's been a while, man. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a while, man. I'm happy to talk to you, and I've kept in touch with, um, your brother Aaron here in Tampa during spring training to see how you're doing. So I'm, I'm all caught up with you, man. And I'm, I'm glad to get a chance to talk to you and uh, see what's going on. Oh, you're, you're caught up in me through uncle Aaron. Oh, that's, that's shady. That's shady. Hey man, what a great guy. man! <laughs> He's doing a great job. He's doing a great job, man. He really, he really is. We just had him on the podcast yeah. recently, but uh, off air before you came out, we were talking about Tampa and, and uh, I was teasing a little bit how Tino never left Tampa. You were born and raised there. Uh, it's kind of a hotbed for, for baseball. You know, Gary Sheffield came out of there. Our, both of our skippers, Lou Pinella, came out of there. Louis Gonzalez. Let's go back to where it all started. Tell me, tell me about your childhood. Well, basically, um, I, I grew up here in Tampa. My grandparents, both sets of my grandparents, uh, came from – well, my great-grandparents came from Spain – to Tampa, actually, and my grandparents were born here, and they were in the cigar business, and um, my parents, uh, we all grew up here, and I went to school here, high school here, college here, the whole nine yards, and it's, and it's funny you say um, that Lupinella was uh, from here as well. He grew up right across the street from my parents, and they all went to high school together. Um, Louis Gonzalez and I went to high school together. Uh, Gary Sheffield and I played against each other in high school. Um, just so many guys. I mean, Dwight Gooden, Wade Boggs, we all right in the same area, but uh, – uh, it's just, I guess, I just love to hear, you know, and I, every time I played, wherever I went to play ball at, whether it was Seattle or St. Louis or New York, um, you know, I always came home in the off season and made Tampa my home and I've always loved it here and I still do. So I have a lot of, uh, uh, family here, friends here, and then it's never, uh, I'm going to wind up dying here, I guess. <laughs> uh, and, and I was talking about it earlier. I think there, there's, there's positives to just stay where you started. A lot of perks there. I mean, uh, I'm sure you have relationships going back to, you know, before your professional career. But let's talk about you get to high school. Uh, you went to two state championships and you went to two different high schools, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah correct. Uh, before, you were, before you were a third round pick of the Red Sox. Um, you end up going to University of Tampa, though, and foregoing uh, – that draft pick. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay. This was back in 1985 and, um, uh, I was fortunate to play baseball at, um, Tampa Catholic high school. My freshman year I started and we won the state championship that year. And that year we had, um, we had two guys, Richard Monteleone and Lance McCullers senior. So Lance McCullers junior's dad, um, we're going to be first round picks that year. They were seniors and I was a freshman. And throughout that entire season, I was, I had a really good year. You know, as, as a 14-year-old freshman, <clears throat> and the scouts were out there to watch them every day. We had tons of scouts watching the pitch and all that stuff. And the scouts would pull me aside when the, when the games were over and said, hey, you know, if you keep working hard, buddy, you know, you got a great chance to make it in, in the big leagues. You know, I was, you know, a freshman back then, 14, 15 years old. I'm going, yeah, yeah, I'll keep working hard, yeah. 
but I got noticed back then because of those two guys. So um, after my senior year of high school, I got drafted in the third round by the Boston Red Sox. So now you got to remember back then, uh, it's not like now when you get a two or three million dollar signing bonus. I got a you know a fifty thousand dollar offer to go you know play minor league baseball for the Boston Red Sox, and uh, you know my parents were you know dead set against that and saying you know you got to go to college anywhere you want to go, but you know if you're good enough, if you're a good enough player. Uh, you got to get an education in college and they'll find you. They know where you're at. So obviously I knew from uh, my senior year in high school, I went to the University of Tampa um, because I knew I would start there and play three years there and not have to sit out and all that stuff. So uh, it worked out very well, but I obviously wanted to go to a bigger school, but it was a great opportunity for me at the, at the time and I took advantage of it. Yeah, University of Tampa, uh, Division Two school that Tino went to and What's amazing now is years later, they've got a Tino Martinez Award uh, in <laughs> Division II College, what, which is pretty awesome. So you go to University of Tampa. You star there your junior year. Uh, you're nominated for, for Golden Spikes, which uh, for the people out there listening, that's, that's pretty rare for a Division II school to have a player nominated for that for the most coveted college award, but you were your number one pick in 1988. I had a buddy of yours on uh, uh, the other day in Jim Abbott. And that 1988 season was a special season. I know for Jimmy, for all of us, I think I'm, I'm two years behind you in college, Tino. And I remember watching that 88 team. It kind of that Olympic team in 88, it kind of put college baseball uh, on the map, so to speak. And, and I know that the younger generation of college, we really looked to you guys. That was a fun summer. Uh, you had Ben McDonald and Ventura and a good buddy of mine, Eddie Sprague. And, yeah. and of course, Jim, who I, who I spoke with, he had nothing but great things to say. What was your experience uh, that 88 summer? Man, it was an unbelievable experience. You know, we, um, it was all of our junior years and um, you know, we all got drafted. Most of us got drafted in the first round, Ventura, even Ty Griffin. Uh, Sprague, Ben McDonald, Andy Bennis. Um, we had we had a great team, and um, we all we all just you know we talked we played to get together the year before the summer before in the uh, 1987 Pan American Games and won the silver medal that year. And we all talked about hey, if we get drafted this year. Let's just try to play the Olympics team and try to win the gold before we start our pro careers. And most guys were all for it, so we got drafted. I guess in June when the college season was over, and all of our teams, our professional teams, allowed us to go play in the Olympics. And it was a great experience for us because we went from we, – we trained in Millington, Tennessee, where we started out at for about three weeks. We played uh, full schedule through all, uh, throughout the summer throughout the United States. Then we played a, a tournament in, um, in, in Japan. We came back to the States, went to Italy, played uh, 30-day world championship games in Italy with all the, all the um, international teams played there. We, we um, lost the, uh, the, the gold medal game in the um, – the, the, the world championship games to Cuba on a uh, walk-off home run. And then from there he went to, um, we wound up in Seoul career for the Olympics. And I mean, it was a great summer for all of us. We had a bunch of great guys on the team and winning that gold medal in Seoul Korea was, uh, you know, back then in college, it was like our world series, you know, winning the world series for us as the amateur was like, that was the top of the, you know, I mean, top of the mountain for us. We were all excited and it was a great thing. And then from that point on, we all just, you know, separated, went our separate ways into the minor leagues and tried to find a way back to the big leagues. So you, you played that, that summer, that great 
the uh, Olympic team that won the gold medal. So 89, we followed up and I think it's the Pan Am Games. So right. as you as you know, it, it was special for you to get drafted number one and not immediately signed to go play summer ball because it was an Olympic year. Well, normally the juniors that are that are high draft picks, they don't stick around for amateur summer ball. They just sign with their team. But being an Olympic year, so that 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 puts me a year later. So it's the '89 uh, Pan Am. So all our juniors, the best juniors in college, they they sign with their prospective clubs and they go off. So basically, our team was made up of of sophomores in high in college. I'm sorry, right. sophomores and freshmen. So we did that same tour. We had a little different result. I remember going to Cuba and Fidel comes to the game and and uh, we're watching these guys hit BP. And we're thinking we're going to boat race these clowns. We get out there. I mean, it was like men playing with children. We got I think we got, you know, in the international rules, they got the mercy rule. We got mercy rule three times and, and we kind of put our tail between our legs and left Cuba. So I had a little bit of a different experience than you guys did uh, from an age. Well, describe. It, it was funny, though. So well, you, you, know, uh, you say that about you. But you, you say, Booney, is um, the thing one of the best stories I ever had was. We went down to Cuba to play a seven-game series against the Cuban national team. Again, we were loaded. We had you know, we had Frank Thomas. We had um, the whole team. I told you about Jim Abbott, Ed Sprague, Ben McDonald. We were loaded. Um, and we went down to play a seven-game series down there. And no American team has ever beaten the Cuban national team. We're, we're, we're 18, 19 years old playing their professional all-star team. The 25, 35-year-old, the best players they have in Cuba back then. And the first game we get there – I remember, you know, at the hotel, you, you, you put your uniform on at the hotel, you're on the bus, you have your bag with the bat and glove in it and your spikes and the thing. And we wind up going to the stadium there. We had no idea what was going on. And Ron Frazier, the legendary Ron Frazier from the University of Miami, was our head coach. And we walk into this Latino American stadium and you walk in where the fans walk in. There's no player entrance and that kind of stuff. You, you walk in with, with the, um, where the, um, the, the, the regular people walk in. We walk in, it's 50,000 people already in there, and they're going crazy, screaming, yelling, and we're going, oh, my God, you know. We, you know, and we, we walk down like the bleachers, we jump a fence, go to the dugout. So now the games will start at 8 o'clock at night, and we're all sitting in the dugout there. It's the middle of July. It's smoking hot in Cuba, and we're all sitting there. The games will start at 8 o'clock, and it's about 840, uh, I'm sorry, 745, 8 o'clock, batting practice is over, 815, 830. There's no umpires quarter to nine and we're just sitting there and nobody knows what's going on and then all of a sudden we're seeing the dugout there waiting we, we thought we were waiting for the umpires and all of a sudden around nine o'clock the, there's a thunderous roar go throughout the entire stadium like a big roar we're going oh shoot man what's going on here and we all stand up and here comes fidel down the middle of the stadium to, right down the middle with his bodyguards next to him all in fatigues shotguns on the side it was an unbelievable scene he comes down to the first row there where he sits at and there's a hole in the in the wall there where he shakes all the players hands so the cuban national team is all standing there standing there at attention with their, their hats around the side and he waves them over and they come over and they in a perfect line and they shake his hand behind home plate one by one by one we're sitting there and then he waves us over and ron frazier goes sit down we're not going there and we're going what what are you talking about what he goes, you're not going, we're not going. And, and the whole crowd goes, ooh. And we're going, oh, my God, this is game one. We're there, we're, there, we're there for 10 <laughs> days playing seven games. We're going, oh, my God, what is he doing? What's he doing? And Fidel Castro gets up. 
He walks over, steps, jumps up the fence. He comes to our dugout and shakes all of our hands one by one by one and walks back. And Frazier goes, that's how you do it, boys. <laughs> wow. And that's how we started the series. That, 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 that was, is awesome. And, and man, amazing, Cuba, what a – Amazing. In the first night, we lost – real quick, I'll finish up real quick with a quick story. that We lost first game. Jim Abbott's pitching the second game now. We lost the first game three to two. And, of course, the first guy up, you know, Jim Abbott has, you know, a, a one hand. He's missing one hand. Uh, the first guy drops a bunt down to third base. Abbott fields it, throws it to first base, and then 50,000 people went crazy. Next guy comes up, drags one the other way, picks it up. Abbott picks it up, throws it first, and the fans went nuts. And we wound up winning that game like like 7-5. to five, And uh, Jim Abbott won that game. We were the first uh, American team to actually win, uh, uh, to beat the Cuban national team in Cuba for the first time. Wow, that's awesome. We we didn't help you the following year. <laughs> Our record didn't improve. Uh, no, well, US, we, well, we had US But I'll tell you, I remember, uh, you remember Linares. Linares was probably the third yeah, baseman. Omar Linares. Yeah, he was a stud. Remember, they were trying to get him to come over. He never defected. And then the he crazy guy. Who's the crazy guy that's kind of the, Victor the fan favorite? Yes. You know all these. Yep. You remember him like it's yesterday. Victor so, Mesa. Yeah. I remember him. So Victor wow. Mesa, Victor Mesa was the star center fielder. Like you know, he was a real hot, you know, hot shot guy. Both of his sons are signed with the Marlins. There, there's Victor Victor Mesa, and another Victor Mesa and Victor Victor Mesa is their names. They both are with the Marlins organization right now. Wow, that is... yeah, and we had and we played against um, uh, uh, Lourdes, um Gosh, the first baseman for the uh, the Houston Astros, um, oh, Guriel. His, his Guriel, Lourdes Guriel. We Lord played against Guriel. his father and his son. His brother plays for the Blue Jays. We played against his father, Lourdes Guriel Sr. We played against him, Victor Mesa Sr. And uh, most of those guys came from Cuba. We played, we played against their dad. <laughs> oh, that's, that's incredible. And you, you got him. You got the names down, too. Oh, yeah, Victor Mesa. Victor, Victor, and Victor. Victor, Victor Mesa. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. All right, so let's shoot it. We You signed with the Mariners, and uh, once again, people listen to the Boone podcast. I was kind of – Tito was like, kind of like my big brother. He was he was two years ahead of me. I signed with the Mariners in, in 90. Tino was just getting to the big leagues in 90. I mean, we go way back to to, to doing the Mariner caravan, you know, where, where yeah, I was the, yeah. the new guy on the block, and I'm like, oh, there's Tino. You know, I remember him from the from the Olympics, and he's going to the big leagues. So that was – back then, that was a big deal for me. And you were just kind of establishing yourself at the big league level. I was battling just trying to get out of the minor leagues, but uh, that was a fun team and, and a real offensive team. Obviously, in 95, they, they had that uh, classic series with the Yankees, which kind of kind of put uh, Seattle on the map a little bit. And, you know, playing with Junior and Bone and, and Edgar, uh, what was your experience in, in, until 95 when you when – you, and we'll talk about that a little bit later when you moved on to the Yankees. Before that, talk about that Mariner yeah. team a little bit. Yeah, well, as you know, Booney, we were both there. We were both there in, you know, 93, 94, whatever it was. And, you know, the team was – terrible we had a bad we had a bad team we had bad leadership um the team never won anything they didn't know how to win and you know it starts from the top to the bottom from the front office down you know all the way down and then in 94 95 you know when Lou Pinella got there Lou Pinella was you know a uh, established winner he knew how to win and he brought a whole different attitude to the team and even though we had great players like Griffey and uh Buhner and Randy Johnson 
Uh, we, we had some established players, Edgar Martinez. Um, Lou brought the winning attitude to that team and really uh, started bringing in guys like yourself. We all started as young, young guys, you know, went in, we lost together. We took our lumps together. And then all of a sudden, you know, 95 comes around and um, we, we just start winning and we start, um, you know, the guys, the team just start, we start playing as a team basically and believing we can win. And we just went one day at a time. And all of a sudden down the stretch here, we, we got hot as a team and, um, you know, won the division for the first time in the history of the uh, Mariners organization. But I totally believe that uh, it started with Lupinella because before Lupinella got there, we had no leadership whatsoever to help that team get going. And uh, we had the players, but Lou established that thing and really got that organization going. And that was one of the best, best years of my entire life was 1995 when we, uh, you know, we were down, we were probably, um, I think, 14 games out of the out of first place in the middle of August with six weeks to go behind the California Angels back then. Now the Anaheim, Anaheim Angels now, but back then it was the California Angels. And we started winning every day, and they started losing, winning, losing. Before you know it, September 15 comes around, we're tied with the Angels, and the stadium, the Kingdom is packed. I mean, it's just, just jam-packed every night. The crowd's going crazy. We get hot. We just take off and wind up winning the division, and and uh, making the playoffs the first time, which was uh, one of the most uh, memorable times of my career. Yeah, that was an awesome series. And I had left the – I had got traded to the Cincinnati Reds, so I was kind of keeping my eye on you guys. But I remember that kingdom, and, man, that place was rocking. It was, it's probably – that series in itself probably led to uh, the, the uh, addition of the new stadium in Seattle, which for hitters, it was probably the worst thing because that kingdom was a good place <laughs> to hit. But they got a beautiful stadium out of it. And it all probably came down to that. To that series, which really kind yeah, of flipped that city, they voted, and next thing you know, the stadium was underway. Yeah, you're it's correct because obviously the playoffs are in October, and November was the voting uh, on whether they want to pay the taxes for a new stadium. And when the season began, that they were totally against it. So the the team was ready to move on. They're going to they're not going to get the votes. They're going to move on to the city wherever it may be. And when that team got hot down the stretch there, and we you know the, the city the city just came out and supported the heck out of the team, and it went crazy. And that. Um, Saved baseball in Seattle because by the time November came around, they all voted to pay the taxes for a new stadium, and they got the new stadium, which is a beautiful stadium, and it really um, got that Seattle Mariners organization going. Because from that point on, you know, and you were there as well when, when the team just got hot and they they started being really, really competitive, and they saved baseball in Seattle. But they um, they've really taken off and proved that they can support the team, and, and they're huge baseball fans up there in Seattle. Yeah, my time there in the early two thousands. Uh... When we had, you know, we had three or four back-to-back real, real big seasons there. It that yeah. it, it was unbelievable. And, and I and I sit here kind of from afar now. You know, they they haven't been to the playoffs in I don't know how many years. But but I just remember when you win in Seattle, they will come out and and they will come out. I think the Seahawks are witnessing that right now about the, the fan base. They've had a lot of success recently, and I'd love to oh, see yeah. them get back to that. So after the '95 season. You're headed to the Bronx, and you're replacing, obviously, a legend in New York in, in Don Mattingly. Uh, what was that like for you? Okay, that's, that's a good question there, Booney, because um, um, when we talked about Lou Pinnell earlier, and uh, Lou was our manager in Seattle, and that year, my, my, the year 95, I think he hit 31 home runs and had a great year, and I'm thinking I'm going to be a Seattle Mariner forever. But back then, the ownership group was um, – I, I don't even remember who owned the team back then – they didn't have the you know, finances to like, you know, have a big payroll and stuff. So um, we, we beat the Yankees in the playoffs. I get home October, November, and 
back then there was really no ESPN rumors and stuff on ESPN. It was just basically what you read the newspaper. So one day I'm, in the, I'm reading the newspaper uh, here in Tampa, and I see you know Tino Martinez possibly on the trading block. I'm like, man, I'm getting traded because nobody calls you. You have no idea what's going on with that stuff, whatever. And one day I just happened to see Lou Pinella here in Tampa at the golf course. And I said, Lou, am I getting traded? He goes, yeah, son. You know, I leave Lou talks. Yeah. He said, yeah, son, you know, the, the new owners, they, I was, I was, this arbitration is eligible for the first time. We can't afford to take it to arbitration. The payroll is going to be too high. We got we to gotta trade you. He says, well, where do you want to go? And I said, what are my choices? He says, well, the Yankees want you, the Padres want you, and the uh, Chicago Cubs want you. Well, I knew that um, Don Mattingly was retiring. I loved hitting Yankee Stadium. I, I, when I played there, the, the background, the, you see the ball real well. The right field porch is uh, real short. I loved hitting there. I said, Lou, I'd love to go to New York. He goes, all right, son, I'll make it happen. So he traded me to New York. Obviously, I go in there, and I'm replacing Don Mattingly, who is an all-time legend there forever, and – he had just come off one of the best postseasons. Well, he hadn't been to postseason in a while, but in the 95 series, he had a great great postseason. They had Paul O'Neill, they had Bernie Williams. Mattingly was crushing balls, hitting home runs or whatever, but his back had given out and he was going to retire regardless. So when I got there, I'm going, oh, my God, I'm retired. They didn't want this guy to retire. I got booed my first two months there. I struggled a little bit before I got going, and but I knew that if I just keep kept working hard, uh, I'm going to hit the ball the way I hit the ball, and I'll, I'll be all right eventually, though. But getting booed those first two months was so tough on me because the more they booed me, the harder I tried. And the harder you try, the, the, the worse you get. So it just kind of you know, threw, me, threw me for a loop. But once I got going, I got hot, and the team started winning. You know, we, won, we went off and made the playoffs, won the World Series. So eventually uh, it, it became a great thing. But early on, Booney, it was tough as heck, man. Yeah, and you're just kind of Tino Martinez. You're that name nowadays, and you're just synonymous with New York. You won four World <laughs> Series championships. You know, you hear an awful lot about the Posada and Bernie and Pettit, uh, Mo, and and you were right in the middle of that mix. You were a little older than them, uh, than the than the Jeter and and Posada, but but you were right in the in the middle of all those World Championships. 1997, you hit 44, and you drive in 141. What an awesome time. You got to play for Joe Torre. You talked a lot about Lou Pinnell. How was, how was playing for Joe Torre? Joe Torre was awesome, man. You know, the thing is, you know, we both came up together, um, you and I, with, with Lou Pinella. He was tough, man. He was hardcore. He was, uh, you know, he was exactly what, you, as, a, as a young team, what you needed. Guys to push you guys to, to be the best and make you better and stuff. And then when I got to New York with, with uh, Joe Torre, we had a veteran team there, and his calming influence, he knew what we had there. I mean, you know, he was the perfect guy for that job. We had a veteran team. We had, you know, Bernie Williams, uh, uh, Paul O'Neill, uh, and we had Jimmy Key. We had Wade Boggs. We had these older guys there that were like, he knew what he had to do. Joe knew he had a good team there. And I'll never forget the first year in spring training in 1996, Joe Torrey got – and when the, when the manager talks to you for the first time uh, as a team, which I didn't know anybody on the team at all. You know, we're sitting there. I didn't know Joe Torrey at all. And Joe Torrey said, hey, I've been managing a long time. I've gotten fired from a lot of teams. I've gotten fired. He said, I'm going to tell you guys right now, this is day one. This is day one of, the, of, of, of spring training. He goes, this is the best team I've ever coached in my entire life. And I'm telling you guys now, we're not going to win one World Series. I want to win three. And we're like, okay, cool. I just thought, okay, he's just saying that to pump us up. But we wind up winning the first one that year, and all of a sudden we wind up winning four. But he was uh, the most – even Keel, I mean, he had command of the locker room. The players respected him. <clears throat> you, knew, you knew where you stood with him. 
and he was so uh, calm throughout the whole years of the, all the years there where George Steinbrenner might be hot, pissed off at people, and New York media is on people. He kept the team very calm and having fun throughout the whole time, and he made it a great experience for all of us. Yeah, and I think to this day, I mean, Joe, especially the guys from our generation, uh, you know, across – across baseball all all joe's peers and and all the players that played in his generation definitely there's a lot of respect there you talked about lou and uh you know lou was great i i had the two different lou's you know when i was coming up in those in the early 90s when i was just you know real green coming to the big leagues man he was tough me too me too yeah we'd have these drag out fights in his in his office almost going almost going fisticuffs and then i come back in the early 2000s as a veteran player for lou it was a completely different situation he was he was uh like you the word calming he was calming imagine lou being calming early 2000s he was he was unbelievable and i i just came to find out lose lose a guy if he respects you as a man he respects you as a player he'll run through a wall for you but if he doesn't life's going to be tough for you. And we both yeah. lived it, you know, and, and uh, pretty awesome. And, and, and the Tory stories I've heard, I've heard from a, a bunch of different people about Joe. I've, you know, I've obviously met Joe several times, never got a chance to play for him, but it seems to be uh, the theme is just an unbelievable guy to, to play for and, and a real even keel guy. I want to talk 2001 a little bit when, 9-11 hit, and uh, I remember we had to play you in the playoffs. We ended up getting our, our butt whooped, and I was about tired of that because I, I thought we handled you pretty good during the regular season, and that was a yeah. year we won 116 games. We thought, yeah, we'll just roll into Yankee Stadium and beat them like we've been whooping them all year. That didn't, <laughs> that didn't happen, but when 9-11 hit, where were you? We were in, I was in Anaheim. Where, where were you guys, the Yankees? Yeah, so I had an apartment in, in the New York City, and that night, uh, September the 10th, we got rained out against the, um, I believe, the White Sox, I believe. We got rained out that night, so I just went back to my apartment, <clears throat> and um, we had the Red, Red Sox coming in the next day. And the next morning, I, was, I woke up in my, in my apartment, and uh, I, I turned my TV on, and I, and I heard, hey, there's a, a, plane, hit, a plane hit the uh, World Trade Center. So I'm watching my TV, and I, looked, I had my, actually, I was living on 38th Street, and first and my, my windows faced down towards the uh, world trade centers that way i was probably about 50 blocks away but you can see them very clearly and i looked out there i was like wow you know i thought it was like a little uh, accident like a private you know plane or something a uh prop a prop plane that may have made a mistake and as i had my tv on i just looked at my tv and, and, the, and, the, and the guy on tv says and a plane hit the other building and i looked at, i looked out at live i was like oh my god you know, it freaked me out. Now we knew something was going on there. So that night we, uh, I didn't know what to do. So uh, that morning, that morning I just, you know, I got dressed and I ran downstairs to my doorman. Said, "Where do we go?" He goes, "You can't go anywhere. The city's locked in a lockdown." And we had lost um, cell phone service at that time. You couldn't call home. You couldn't call anybody. And we didn't know what to do. And eventually, um, you know, we got our cell services back a little bit. We knew that the season, well, not season, but the season was on hold, and we were just stuck in the city. Um, day by day by day for about five or six days before we were able to get out of there. So it was a, a crazy, um, obviously, the most, you know, uh, the, 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 you know in, in world history, one of the worst days in world history. And, um, you know, we just kind of like went through it like day by day, like it was a fog, you know, we just kind of like, you know, met up with some players in the streets and just talked and didn't know where to go. The restaurants were closed. We just went to bed every night for about five days and 
didn't know what was going on at all. It was the craziest thing ever. Yeah, and it was it was amazing because we came uh, we came Mariners came into town for the second round of the playoffs against you guys in New York, and I remember you know they had they had a uh, they offered us they said hey if you guys want to go down and check out Ground Zero you can. And, you know, this is back before we had the cell phones that we have today where everything, you know, everybody's got a camera going. Uh, We went down there, put the helmets on. They gave us a little tour. I can still picture that like like I'm standing there right now. And and it was it's like it was smoke or something still coming off uh, at ground zero. We had our helmets on. I remember I was there with Johnny Olerud. We're just kind of looking at each other. It was one of the most real moments I've ever I've ever been in where, wow. This is this is pretty unbelievable, and uh, man, man, what a time! What a time that was! Yeah, but, uh, yeah, we yeah we, we went down there as well. As, as, on the off day, we got back. We started. We went home when when the uh, world when the night of it hit. We went back. We got back home for a while. Then we started our season back in Chicago for a four game series. We came back to New York and we had an off day. We went down there on the off day. Same thing. We went down to um, uh, Ground Zero. There we met with a lot of the uh, wives and kids of their they lost their husbands and fathers uh, from the first responders right there across the street from the, uh, from the, from the world trade center from the, uh, the fire stations there. And we're talking to the wives and kids and all that stuff. And I'll never forget that either. We went down there and they took us down into like the lower levels there. It was all dust. And, you know, you just saw firefighters come laying on the ground, um, offices with pictures laying on the ground and the smell was something I'll never forget. We were down there all day long and we got back home to our, our apartment that night, late at night, that night around 10 o'clock. And the, the, the smell of my clothes, I had to throw my clothes, I had to throw my clothes in, in the, uh, down the trash chute because that smell was in my apartment. And I just didn't want to have that smell anymore that I thought about 9-11. So it was crazy. And, um, but again, when you guys came into town, when the, when the series started, um, uh, you know, after that, about what it was, three weeks later, the fans came out, as you know, Booney, it was the loudest Yankee stadium has ever been that I've ever heard it. You know, the it, was, um, it, was, uh, it was unbelievable. Yeah, they they came up that series, and it was their really their their three hours of a chance to like vent and be you know be loud and crazy and forget about the real world for just three hours, even though they don't really forget about it. And it gave them some outlet. And um, you know, it was we beat you guys in that series, but it was a great series all the way around. And they gave them just a lot of entertainment and a lot of cheering to go through, and it was a lot of fun. How about and when I think back to that year and and that postseason, what really stands out for me is that. Uh, the first pitch from George W. Bush. Uh, I still see that today, and it kind of gives me chills. Uh, what were your memories of that? Yeah, so um, that was the first. That was game. Uh, we, we we were in the World Series that year, and we played the Diamondbacks. We played games mm-hmm. one and two in Arizona, and lost both games in Arizona, and came back for game three, four, and five. So game three was the day he was going to throw out that first pitch. And um, you know how you know the, 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 when you prepare for the games, you hit batting practice stuff, and then <clears throat> probably about half an hour before the game, you go to the batting cage, just loosen up one more time before you go on the field. And in Yankee Stadium, as, as you know, where the, where, where, or the, the first base side is the Yankee side, and our batting cage is all the way down the tunnel towards the right field foul pole down there, as you know, where it's at. Mm-hmm. It's a long walk. And, and we went down there to walk down there before the, our, our, the game started. It was lined up with security guards all the way down there to the cage. And George Bush was down there throwing, warming up in the bullpen. And we're like, there's only one cage down there. And we're trying to get some swings, and he's just firing balls, trying to get you know get loose and stuff. And he's got you know his um uh, the the, the uh, bulletproof jacket on, 
He's got the, the World Series jacket on top of that. He's got a long sleeve shirt, and he just wanted to make a good pitch. And we're like watching him. He had that worried look on his face, like, oh, my God. And we're going, oh, my God, this is surreal, you know? And then when that first pitch came back, we decided, you know, we got back to the game. And he threw that first pitch, and he threw it. So, first of all, we're back. We're in the dugout. He had security with him, Secret Service guys right with him. And they wanted to walk out to the, to, to the mound with him. And during batting practice, you can see the um, snipers and all the buildings across on top of the stadium and everywhere else. You see the fighter jets flying around. And he told them, no, I got to go by myself to show America that we're, we're okay. And he walked out there by himself and threw that first pitch strike, and the stadium erupted, and it was the most amazing moment I've ever seen in, in, in my baseball career. That strike he threw right down the middle was, like, incredible. And the crowd went nuts, and we wound up winning, game, we wound up winning games three, four, and five, but eventually lost the World Series. But those three games in New York were incredible. Yeah, and, and being in New York many times, being disappointed more times than I like to talk about the postseason in New York against you guys. Uh, there's not too many bigger things – in sports than game three at old Yankee stadium. And I think that night that he threw out that first pitch, you're right. It, it was kind of surreal. It, it yeah. transcended the game. It was bigger than the game itself. It was something saying to the country that you're right. We are okay. And okay. Uh, that's, that's something I'll never forget. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So you guys win those three, you head to Arizona and now your buddy from Tampa, we're going back to the Tampa roots, Louie. Yeah, he, he he gets that big knock, and people ask me all the time about that knock. I said that's what RBI guys do; they fight that pitch yeah. off. They flare t- that infield's in. That's a part of the deal. If that infield's not in, maybe it's a different story. But it was in, and he gets the big hit. You guys, when I I've heard rumors that there was a uh, a phone call from Tino Martinez to one Louis <laughs> Gonzalez and, and left him a message. Uh, Hey, what was that all a about? childhood buddy, man. It's a childhood friend yeah. from, from six years old to high school. So anyhow, he, um, so, so basically we go, we go back to game six over there. We have Andy Pettit on the mound and Andy Pettit is Mr. Postseason. He is the most, if you want a guy to pitch a closing game out in, in, in the postseason world series, it's Andy Pettit. He's going to give you a great outing. And I guess they must've had his pitches or whatever, but he got lit up in game six. So now game seven, we go into the last inning there. Um, we're up, but we're up. Two to one, or three to two, I believe it was. And, um, you know, they started a rally against Mariano Rivera of all people. So, Luis Gonzalez, my, I, we played together since six years old, together the same team, <clears throat> six years old, all the way through at high school. And he's up there facing Mariano. He had faced him two innings earlier and he struck out because Mariano pitched the, uh, the uh, I think he pitched the seventh to get all the way through the ninth. Now he's back in the ninth or tenth inning. And um, Luis, Luis is up there. I'm going, oh my God, Luis struck out last time. This guy, is gonna, he, he's going to put the ball in play. And like you said, Booney, you get a, a jam shot, I mean, against anyone in the big leagues, it's a base hit RBI, it's, it, you love it. You get a jam shot against Mariano Rivera in game seven of the World Series to walk us off the field was like a moment. Like, I mean, that's a, as a kid in the backyard, that's what you dream of. And I, he hit that ball, and it, it obviously it was a base hit. And he ran by me, and I was so disappointed that we lost. We could, that would have been our fourth World Series win in a row, which probably would ever, be, would ever happen again. And I watched that ball go, and I go, oh, my God. Then I see him rounding first base, and I'm going like, oh, my God, what is he feeling like right now? Unbelievable, you know? So when the game was over, you know, I went in and showered and stuff, and I got on the bus. I just, you know, called him and sent him a text real quick. You know, congratulations, buddy. You know, uh, 
great moment. Enjoy it. Enjoy the next couple of weeks. Uh, you deserve it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, still one of my best friends ever. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So we're headed out. We're going to move on to your St. Louis years. We've got, we've got Lou and we've got Joe Torrey. You move on to St. Louis in 02. And by the way, you just replaced Mattingly. Now you're replacing McGuire. So I, I was kind of going over before, before this podcast. I'm going, well, Tino's now legendary New York Yankee first baseman, but he placed, replaced a legendary Yankee first baseman. Then he replaced a, a legendary first baseman in uh, St. Louis and, and got to play for Tony La Russa there, who's another Tampa guy. We got these ties all over the place. Uh, tell me about those St. Louis years. Yeah, so so the, the the crazy part is, you know, if you remember back in the day in, in those years, every team had a great first baseman. I mean, it was Mo Vaughn, Mark McGuire, Paul Mero, I mean, Frank Thomas. There were these all-stars. It's hard to make an all-star team as a first base, period. And when I became – I didn't become a free agent that year. I wanted to come, I, I was a free agent, and I wanted to sign back with the Yankees. We just lost to the Diamondbacks. And I wanted to play three more years, but Jason Giambi, who's hitting 40 home runs a year and winning MVP awards, is available. So, you know, George Steinbrenner thought, you know, let's just sign Giambi. We, 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 had, we had a rough World Series against uh, Randy Johnson and Schilling, and, you know, he wanted more offense, so he signed Jason Giambi. So now I'm a free agent. And now I'm sitting out there as a free agent going, I'm looking at the, at the rosters and stuff, and I'm going, nobody needs a first baseman. There, I'm going to be. I'm not going to get a job this year. There's no first baseman's jobs available, and that's all I played was first base. I wish I was a utility guy. And McGuire decides to retire, and I'm going, oh my god, what are my chances of going to St. Louis? And that was really the only team possible that I could have gone to that year that needed a first baseman. And eventually they signed me, and I was like, you know, I, they, I, I had to call them. We worked out a deal and stuff, whatever. <laughs> and like you said, I thought, well. I know going to St. Louis, nobody in St. Louis is going to expect me to hit 70 home runs. That's not, that's unfeasible. So I'm thinking if I get 25 <laughs> home runs, 25 home runs, it's a good year. I'll be just do what I usually do at 20 to 25 home runs, maybe 30, depending on how the year goes, whatever. And that'll be fine. And um, that's how I looked at it, you know, but the fans were a little disappointed because, you know, they didn't expect me to hit 70 home runs. But I think they expected about 40 home runs, which I didn't, you know, I did it one year only, and that was it. But um, it was a great experience. You know, we went to the playoffs uh, a couple of years, lost to the uh, Giants to go to the World Series, and I got a chance to play for uh, Tony La Russa, who's uh, another Hall of Fame manager. And um, it was a lot of fun, a great experience, and I learned a lot from him. And looking back on it all, playing for, you know, Lou Pinella, Joe Torre, and, uh, and Tony La Russa, who I think Lou is a Hall of Fame manager. He's not there yet three Hall of Fame guys, uh, was a great experience. I learned so much from all those guys, period. And that's awesome because I'm going to have Giambi on the show and I'm going to say, Jason, what was it like replacing the legendary Tino <laughs> Martinez in New York? So We all love Giambi, man. Giambi's the greatest guy ever, man. We all love him. He, he, really, he really is. So you head on to yeah. Tampa, 04, and uh, you're back with Skipper. You're back with Lou. Lou, yeah. Yeah, and then in '05, yeah. it, it it well Tampa for you. You're coming home, but then in '05, uh, you come back to to where you had all your your big success, New York, yeah. and you end up retiring at the end of the season. Uh, was it fitting for you uh, coming back to New York uh, for your last year? Yeah, it was. You know, when I, when I went to Tampa, um, Lupinel had said, "Hey, would you, would you come here for a year?" And they had back then they had. Um, 
Rocco Baldelli, uh, Aubrey Huff, uh, Carl Crawford, Toby Hall, a bunch of young guys coming up. Really good players, though. He said, I want you to just kind of guide these young guys. We're not going to win many games, but guide these guys along and help them out. So I said, yeah, absolutely. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that year being home and playing for the Rays. And, uh, you know, I had a pretty good year and stuff. And when that year was over, I was going to retire. And then the Yankees called me. They, they still had Giambi. And they said, hey, would you mind coming back and, like, you know, coming off the bench and playing, you know, you'll play part-time, you'll pinch hit, you'll play some defense and stuff. I was like, oh, absolutely, you know. And uh, I went back to New York and had a, I had a pretty good year. I think I hit 17 home runs that year, a part-time role. And, um, and I, at that point, my kids were about to start high school and stuff. And uh, uh, I, 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 the Royals offered me a two-year deal. The Baltimore Orioles offered me a two-year deal. And I, looking back, I wish I had taken it just to, like, keep kept my career going. But I thought it's time to be home and get home with the kids and stuff. And that's the only reason why I retired. And one of the biggest traditions in baseball – is the Yankee old timer game? What was that like? First time coming back, uh, yeah, putting that uni on and that and the old timer. Because what people don't understand is, you know, I got to play for some great teams, some great players. Uh, but the Yankees, the roll call there, and, and the way they do it in New York, the way they keep those those legendary players around, and they're always around. It seems like every time we're coming in there to play you, you know, Reggie's saying, and, and it was Yogi yeah. Berra for years. It's 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 really impressive. I think they do an unbelievable job. Uh, so so when you go to a Yankee old timer game, it's not like you're going to a, a regular event. I mean, this is like star studded event. How was that first time back? Yeah, it, it was cool. You know, I, I obviously I I think me and you were there at one time, uh, same time. I think you were still the team when Lou Pinella was. Uh, it was Old Timers Day, and Lou was our manager, and he went out there. And he hit, uh, he played the game. He had his, uh, yeah, his Mariner uniform on, whatever. And, the, you know, you know this is a BP, a BP pitcher throwing. And the, at, the, at that point, we were kind of struggling as a team. And Lou hits a double into the gap in left center. And he comes to the goes, You see, it's not that hard. It's well, not that <laughs> effing hard. It's not that effing hard. You see, I just did. I haven't hit a ball in years. Anyhow, uh, but you, you know, you watch those guys from, from, from as a visiting team when I was younger. You watch those, we were there for a few old timers days. You're going, that's really cool. Then when you get a chance to be in the dugout or the locker room and the old guys are there, you know, you got Yogi Berra on there. At one point we had Joe DiMaggio there and, and the early years, uh, Mickey Mantle was there and these guys, you, and you just kind of go, wow, this is pretty cool, you know, and, um, to watch some guys just, you know, dress in your locker room and then to become an old timer as well. You know, I thought at the, when I was an old timer, I was still young and it wasn't like those guys were, you know, they, those guys are old. That's what you think an old timer is, but, to be in the uh, locker room with those guys, uh, I mean, you're talking about everybody from Whitey Ford to Yogi Berra to Don Larson. It was really cool to be around that those guys and take pictures with them and stuff, and you know, just have those memories that'll last forever. And your kids and grandkids are going to see those pictures and stuff like that, which is going to be pretty cool. All right, tell me about the Buccaneers, Brady. Hey, listen, unbelievable! Man, I grew up here in Tampa, uh, 1976. I was 12 years old. My grandfather had tickets. We went to watch him play. It was 0-16 that year and 1-15 and the next year. And I've been watching him for years and years. And then, um, you know, when we got Tom Brady in the offseason, I'm like, I hadn't, I hadn't had season tickets in quite a while. And when we signed Tom Brady, I said, I'm going to get season tickets for this. i got to watch this. So, obviously, I bought season tickets when we signed him. And then the coronavirus hit, so we really couldn't go to the games. And I was able to go to two games. And... um but to, for him to come into town and, and uh, we, we knew we'd be a better team. We knew the Bucks would be a better team. 
whether they might make the playoffs, but for this guy to take them to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, uh, it's just totally incredible. What an amazing athlete. Uh, what an amazing guy. I mean, just uh, it's just it was amazing to watch. It was so much fun. It's it really is unbelievable because football is 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 kind of different than what than the baseball we play. I mean, when you're a quarterback, you come in in this COVID atmosphere, you know. So obviously, there, there's a lot more to studying the playbook, getting with your new team, and for him to do it right. this particular year at his age, and just oh, oh yeah, God. I'm just going to head over to Tampa. We're just going to win the world or the World Series, the Super Bowl. I mean, he told him. Year. You read the article of the paper. He told him day one, we're going to win the Super Bowl. When they won the Super Bowl, they lost the games. Every every week article, week to week, the newspaper. It was like he just knew what he was doing, and he knows how to manage a game by himself. He was awesome, man. It was like a, a big lift to our city. You know, the Lightning won the, the Stanley Cup a few months earlier, and it was like throughout this whole COVID process, the city of Tampa got a big boost from these all these teams here, and uh, I'll never forget the feeling they gave us all. So it was a lot of fun to watch. It was awesome. I was actually, you know, I, I kind of sit on the sidelines. I'm just kind of a fan of sport. I like I like to see good players <laughs> make good plays. But I got to admit, I was pulling for Brady because it's it's kind of like even as great as he is, and everybody calls him the goat. He's definitely the goat. But to do it at definitely that age against against Mahomes, you know, the probably the greatest current quarterback, and it wasn't even close. Yeah. It was yeah. uh, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. We get lost in that whole thing, though. We had a great defense. Our defense played great that game. Unbelievable. Um, and and uh, a real quick story here, real quick. My my son loves the Bucks too. And um, uh, Antoine Antoine Winfield got a the, our our free safety guy got a big uh, tattoo. It's on Instagram, all up his forearm, the Super Bowl trophy and stuff. And he goes, Dad, look at this here. He got a big trophy, Super Bowl trophy tattoo on his arm. And Tom Brady commented, Hey, yo, bro, save room for one more. Wow. <laughs> That, that is really cool. That is really cool. That was cool. Well, T- yeah. Yeah. Well, Tito, I appreciate you coming on, man. This was fun. Uh, got to go down memory lane a little bit. And what we do here on the Boone Podcast is we bring in the voice of the Boone Podcast at the end to ask you one question from the fans. Dan, take it away. Hi, Tino. How are you? Good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing splendid. All right. <laughs> this question comes from Matt in Tampa, and he wants to know this. West Tampa has so many good players that have made it to the big leagues. What is the secret in Tampa? <laughs> I we have no idea. Um, you know, Al Lopez, the old he's beyond before our years, is the first Hall of Famer from Tampa. But then Wade Boggs came along and, and, and had success. White Gooden came along. Uh Steve Garvey came from here. Um, I mean, they just became a thing where we all believed uh, that we had a chance to do it too, if they can do it. I mean, we all watched each other play. I watched Dwight Gooden a few years ahead of me. I watched Dave Magadan ahead of me. Um, Sheffield was a year behind me. We just all just knew that we had the opportunity to do it if we worked hard, and they all made us believe we can we can do it. All right, Tino Martinez, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with us. Thank you, guys. Had a good time. Thank you. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is time to dig into the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to roll? I'm ready to do it. Okay. Brett, this one comes from Mike in Tucson. Brett, who is your sleeper to win the World Series? I'm headed to Vegas, and I want to put down some money on a preseason wager. What do you got? Sleeper this year. All right. Chicago White Sox. And and not that they're a real sleeper, but they're definitely not going to be favored to win it. Probably going to be – probably the Dodgers are going to be favored. San Diego's definitely going to get some love. 
man, that White Sox, I think they're primed. Uh, Yankees are going to be tough if everything, you know, falls in line from a health standpoint. Uh, White Sox are really good. I like what I see from the White Sox. LaRusse is headed over there. Go with the White Sox. Okay. We dip back into the mailbag. Ken in Houston. Brett, who is the most underrated player you've ever played with? Underrated. Underrated. Wow, Ken. That's a, that's a really good making me think. <laughs> God forbid. Underrated. Well, I've played with some overrated players, but underrated. Man, Brian Jordan. Uh, we had him on the podcast a few weeks back or a month or so back. The year I played with the Braves, 1999, Chipper was the uh, the MVP that year, MVP of the league. But I'll tell you what, Brian Jordan, uh, he's known as, as a baseball player and a football player, really good player. So that's my underrated. All right. That is going to do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag. And once again, you can throw all your questions at Brett all you want. Hit him up on Twitter, at TheBoone29. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer, and the voice of this here, the Brett Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content is all handled by the one and only lovely Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, pretty pleased with cherries on top. Give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to for the show. For all of us here at the Brett Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. We're going to do it again real soon. Thanks for listening. See you guys.